Chapter Thirteen of The Last Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. The Last Trail by Zane Gray. Chapter Thirteen. Jonathan traveled towards the east, straight as a crow flies. Wetzel's trail as he pursued Brant had been left designingly plain. Branches of young maples had been broken by the bordermen. They were glaring evidences of his passage. On open ground or through swampy meadows he had contrived to leave other means to facilitate his comrade's progress. Bits of sumac lay strewn along the way, every red leafy branch a bright marker of the course. Crimson maple leaves served their turn, and even long-bladed ferns were scattered at intervals. Ten miles east of Fort Henry, at a point where two islands lay opposite each other, Wetzel had crossed the Ohio. Jonathan removed his clothing, and, tying these together to his knapsack, to the rifle, held them above the water while he swam the three narrow channels. He took up the trail again, finding here, as he expected, where Brant had joined the waiting Shawnee chief. The borderman pressed on harder to the eastward. About the middle of the afternoon signs betokened that Wenzel and his quarry were not far in advance. Fresh imprints in the grass, crushed asters and moss, broken branches with unwithered leaves and plots of grassy ground where Jonathan saw that the blades of grass were yet springing back to the original position, proved to the borderman's practiced eye that he was close upon Wetzel. In time he came to a grove of yellow birch trees. The ground was nearly free from brush, beautifully carpeted with flowers and ferns, and except where brushy windfalls obstructed the way, was singularly open to the gaze for several hundred yards ahead. Upon entering this wood, Wetzel's plain, intentional markings became manifest, then wavered, and finally disappeared. Jonathan pondered a moment. He concluded that the way was so open and clear, with nothing but grass and moss to mark a trail, that Wetzel had simply considered it a waste of time, or perhaps the short length of this grove. Jonathan knew he was wrong, after taking a dozen steps more. Wetzel's trail, known so well to him as never to be mistaken, sheared abruptly off to the left, and after a few yards the distance between the footsteps widened perceptibly. Then came a point where they were so far apart that they could have only been made by long leaps. On the instant the borderman knew that some unforeseen peril or urgent cause had put Wetzel to flight, and he now bent piercing eyes around the grove. Retracing his steps to where he had found the break in the trail, he followed up Brant's tracks for several rods. Not one hundred paces beyond where Wetzel had quit the pursuit were the remains of a campfire the embers still smoldering, and moccasin tracks of a small band of Indians. The trail of Brant and his Shawnee guide met the others at almost right angles. The Indian, either by accident or design, had guided Brant to a band of his fellows, and thus led Wetzel almost into an ambush. Evidence was not clear, however, that the Indians had discovered the keen tracker who had run almost into their midst. While studying the forest ahead, Jonathan's mind was running over the possibilities. How close was Wetzel? Was he still in flight? Had the savages an inkling of his pursuit? Or was he now working out one of his cunning tricks of woodcraft? 
The borderman had no other idea than that of following the trail to learn all this. Taking the desperate chances warranted under the circumstances, he walked boldly forward in his comrade's footsteps. Deep and gloomy was the forest adjoining the birch grove. It was a heavy growth of hardwood trees, interspersed with slender ash and maples, which, with their scanty foliage, resembled a labyrinth of green and yellow network, like filmy dotted lace, hung on the taller, darker oaks. Jonathan felt safer in this deep wood. He could still see several rods in advance. Following the trail, he was relieved to see that Wetzel's leaps had become shorter and shorter, until they once again were about the length of a long stride. The borderman was, moreover, swinging in a curve to the northeast. This was proof that the borderman had not been pursued, but was making a wide detour to get ahead of the enemy. Five hundred yards further on, the trail turned sharply towards the birch grove in the rear. The trail was fresh. Wetzel was possibly within signal call, surely within sound of a rifle shot. But even more stirring was the certainty that Brent and his Indians were inside the circle Wetzel had made. Once again, in sight of the more open woodland, Jonathan crawled on his hands and knees, keeping close to the cluster of ferns until well within the eastern end of the grove. He lay for some minutes listening. A threatening silence, like the hush before a storm, permeated the wilderness. He peered out from his covert, but, owing to its location in a little hollow, he could not see far. Crawling to the nearest tree, he rose to his feet slowly, cautiously. No unnatural sight or sound arrested his attention. Repeatedly, with the acute, unsatisfied gaze of the borderman who knew that every tree every patch of fern, every tangled brush-heap, might harbor a foe. He searched the grove with his eyes, but the curly-barked birches, the clumps of colored ferns, the bushy windfalls, kept their secrets. For the borderman, however, the whole aspect of the birch-grove had changed. Over the forest was a deep calm, a gentle barely perceptible wind sighed among the leaves like rustling silk. The far-off drowsy drum of a grouse intruded on the vast stillness. The silence of the birds betokened a message. That mysterious breathing, that beautiful life of the woods lay hushed, locked in a waiting, brooding silence. Far away among the somber trees, where the shade deepened into impenetrable gloom, lay a menace, invisible and indefinable. A wind, a breath, a chill, terribly potent, seemed to pass over the borderman. Long experience had given him intuition of danger. As he moved slightly, with Link's eyes fixed on the grove before him, a sharp, clear, perfect bird-note broke the ominous quiet. It was like the melancholy cry of an oriole, short, deep, suggestive of lonely forest dells. By a slight variation in the short call, Jonathan recognized it as a signal from Wetzel. The borderman smiled as he realized that with all his stealth, Wetzel had heard or seen him re-enter the grove. The signal was a warning to stand still or retreat. Jonathan's gaze narrowed down to the particular point whence had come the signal. 
Some two hundred yards ahead, in this direction, were several large trees standing in group. With one exception, they all had straight trunks. This deviated from the others in that it possessed an irregular bulging trunk, or else half-shielded the form of Wetzel. So indistinct and immovable was this irregularity that the watcher could not be certain. Out of line somewhat with this tree which he suspected screened his comrade, lay a large windfall, large enough to conceal in ambush a whole band of savages. Even as he gazed, a sheet of flame flashed over the cover. Crack! A loud sound followed, then the whistle and zip of a bullet as it whizzed close by his head. Shawnee lead, muttered Jonathan. Unfortunately, the tree he had selected did not hide him sufficiently. His shoulders were so wide that either one or the other was exposed, affording a fine target for a marksman. A quick glance showed him a change in the knotty tree trunk. The seeming bulge was now the well-known figure of Wetzel. Jonathan dodged as some object glanced slantingly before his eyes. Twang was thud! Three familiar and distinct sounds caused him to press hard against the tree. A tufted arrow quittered in the bark not a foot from his head. "'Close shave! Damn that arrow-shootin' Shawnee!' muttered Jonathan. "'And he ain't in the windfall, either.' His eyes searched to the left for the source of this new peril. Another sheet of flame, another report from the windfall. A bullet sang close overhead, and glancing on a branch, went harmlessly into the forest. "'Engines all around. I guess I'd better be making tracks,' Jonathan said to himself, peering out to learn if Wetzel was still under cover. He saw the tall figure straighten up, a long black rifle rise to a level, and become rigid. A red fire belched forth, followed by a puff of white smoke. Bang! An Indian's horrible, strangely breathtaking death yell rent the silence. Then a chorus of plaintive howls, followed by angry shouts, rang through the forest. Naked, painted savages darted out of the windfall toward the tree that had sheltered Wetzel. Quick as thought, Jonathan covered the foremost Indian and with the crack of his rifle saw the redskin drop his gun, stop in his mad run, stagger sideways, and fall. Then the borderman looked to see what had become of his ally. The cracking of the Indian's rifle told him that Wetzel had been seen by his foes. With almost incredible fleetness, a brown figure with long black hair streaming behind darted in and out among the trees, flashed through the sunlit glade, and vanished in the dark depth of the forest. Jonathan turned to flee also, when he heard again the twanging of an Indian's bow. A wind smote his cheek. A shock blinded him. An excruciating pain seized upon his breast. A feathered arrow had pinned his shoulder to the tree. He raised his hand to pull it out, but slippery with blood it afforded a poor hold for his fingers. Finally exerting himself, with both hands he wrenched away the weapon. The flint head lacerating his flesh and scraping his shoulder bones caused sharpest agony. The pain gave way to sudden sense of giddiness. He tried to run. A dark mist veiled his sight. He stumbled and fell. Then he seemed to sink into a great darkness and knew no more. When consciousness returned to Jonathan, it was night. He lay on his back and knew because of his cramped limbs that he had been securely bound. He saw the glimmer of a fire, but could not raise his head. 
A rustling of leaves in the wind told him he was yet in the woods, and the distant rumble of a waterfall sounded familiar. He felt drowsy. His wound smarted slightly, still he did not suffer any pain. Presently he fell asleep. Broad daylight had come when again he opened his eyes. The blue sky was directly above, and before him he saw a ledge covered with dwarfed pine trees. He turned his head and saw that he was in a sort of amphitheater, of about two acres in extent, closed by low cliffs. A cleft in the stony wall led out a brawling brook and served, no doubt, as entrance to the place. Several rude log cabins stood on that side of the enclosure. Jonathan knew he had been brought to Bing Leggett's retreat. Voices attracted his attention, and turning his head to the other side, he saw a big Indian pacing near him, and beyond, seven savages and three white men, reclining in the shade. The powerful, dark-visaged savage near him he at once recognized as Ashbow, the Shawnee chief, and noted emissary of Bing Leggett. Of the other Indians, three were Delawares and four Shawnees, all veterans with swarthy, somber faces and glistening heads on which the scalp-locks were trimmed and tufted. Their naked, muscular bodies were painted for the warpath with their strange emblems of death. A trio of white men, nearly as bronzed as their savage comrades, completed the group. One a desperate-looking outlaw, Jonathan did not know. The blond-bearded giant in the center was Leggett, steel-blue and humanized, with the expression of a free but hunted animal. A set mastiff-like jaw, brutal and coarse, individualized him. The last man was the haggard-faced Brant. "'I tell you, Brant, I ain't going against this engine,' Leggett was saying positively. "'He's the best ready on the border.' and has saved me scores of time. This feller's aim belongs to him, and while I'd much rather see the scout knifed right here and now, I won't do nothing to interfere with the Shawnee's plans. Why does the Redskin want to take him away to his village? Brant growled, all engine vanity and pride. It's engine ways, and we can do nothing to change him. But your boss here, you can make him put this borderman out of the way. Well, I ain't going to interfere. Anyways, Brent, the Shawnee'll make short work of the scout when he gets him among the tribe. Injuns is Injuns. It's a great honor for him to get Zane, and he wants his own people to figure in the finish. Quite natural, I reckon. I understand all that, but it's not safe for us. And it's courting death for Ashbow. Why don't he keep Zane here? until you can spare more than three Indians to go with him. These bordermen can't be stopped. You don't know them, because you're new in this part of the country. I've been here long as you, and a-goin' some, too, I reckon, replied Liggett complacently. But you've not been hunted until lately by these bordermen, and you've had little opportunity to hear of them, except from Indians. What can you learn from these silent redskins? I tell you, letting this fellow get out of here alive, even for an hour, is a fatal mistake. It's two full days' tramp to the Shawnee village. You don't suppose Wetzel will be afraid of four savages? Why, he sneaked right into eight of us, when we were ambushed waiting for him. He killed one and then was gone like a streak. 
It was only a piece of pure luck we got Zane. I've reason to know this Wetzel, this death wind, as the Delawares call him. I've never seen him, though, and always I reckon I can handle him if ever I get the chance. Man, you're crazy, cried Brandt. He'd cut you to pieces before you'd have time to draw. He could give you a tomahawk, then take it away and split your head. I tell you, I know. You remember Jake Deering? He came from up your way. Wetzel fought Deering and Jim Gertie together and killed them. You know how he left Gertie? I'll allow he must be a fighter, but I ain't afraid of him. That's not the question. I'm talking sense. You've got a chance now to put one of these bordermen out of the way. Do it quick. That's my advice. Brant spoke so vehemently that Leggett seemed impressed. He stroked his yellow beard and puffed thoughtfully on his pipe. Presently he addressed the Shawnee chief in the native tongue. Will Ashbro take five horses for his prisoner? The Indian shook his head. How many will he take? The chief strode with dignity to and fro before his captive. His dark, impassive face gave no clue to his thoughts. But his lofty bearing, his measured, stately walk, were indicative of great pride. Then he spoke in a deep bass. The Shawnee knows the woods from the great lakes where the sun sets to the blue hills where it rises. He has met the great pale-face hunters. Only for Deathwind will Ashbow trade his captive. See, it ain't no use, said Leggett, spreading his hands. Let him go. He'll outwit the borderman. If any redskin's able to, the sooner he goes, the quicker he'll get back, and we can go to work. You ought to be satisfied to get the girl. Shut up, interrupted Brant sharply. Bears to me, Brant, being in love has kind of worked on your nerves. You used to be game. Now you're feared of a bound and tied man who ain't got long to live. I fear no man, answered Brant, scowling darkly. But I know what you don't seem to have sense enough to see. If this Zane gets away, which is probable, he and Wetzel will clean up your gang. Oh, ho, 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 roared Leggett, slapping his knees. Then you'd have a little chance to get in the lass, huh? All right. I've no more to say, snapped Brandt. Raising and turning on his heel, as he passed Jonathan, he paused. Saying if I could, I'd get even with you for that punch you once gave me. As it is, I'll stop at the Shawnee village on my way west. With a pretty lass, interposed Leggett where I hope to see your scalp drying in the chief's lodge. The porterman eyed him steadily, but in silence. Words could not so well have conveyed his thought as did the cold glance of dark scorn and merciless meaning. Brand shuffled on with a curse. No coward was he. No man ever saw him flinch. But his intelligence was against him as a desperado. While such as these bordermen lived, an outlaw should never sleep, for he was a marked and doomed man. The deadly, cold-pointed flame, which scintillated in the prisoner's eyes, was only a gleam of what the border felt towards outlaws. While Jonathan was considering all he had heard, three more Shawnees entered the retreat, and were at once called aside in consultation by Ashbow. 
At the conclusion of this brief conference the chief advanced to Jonathan, cut the bonds around his feet, and motioned for him to rise. The prisoner complied to find himself weak and sore, but able to walk. He concluded that his wound, while very painful, was not of a serious nature, and that he would be taken at once on the march toward the Shawnee village. He was correct, for the chief led him, with the three Shawnees following, toward the outlet of the enclosure. Jonathan's sharp eye took in every detail of Leggett's rendezvous. In a corral near the entrance he saw a number of fine horses, and among them his sister's pony. A more inaccessible natural refuge than Leggett's could hardly have been found in that country. The entrance was a narrow opening in the wall, and could be held by half a dozen against an army of besiegers. It opened, moreover, on the side of a barren hill, from which could be had good survey of the surrounding forests and plains. As Jonathan went with his captors down the hill, his hopes, which, while ever alive, had been flagging, now rose. The long journey to the Shawnee town led through an untracked wilderness. The Delaware villages lay far to the north, the Wyandotte to the west. No likelihood was there of falling in with a band of Indians hunting because this region, stony, barren, and poorly watered, afforded sparse pasture for deer or bison. From the prisoner's point of view, this enterprise of Ashbow's was reckless and vainglorious. Cunning as the chief was, he erred in one point. A great warrior's only weakness, love of show, of pride, of his achievement, in Indian nature this desire for fame was as strong as love of life. The brave risked everything to win his eagle feathers, and the matured warrior found death while keeping bright the glory of the plumes he had won. Wetzel was in the woods fleet as a deer, fierce and fearless as a lion. Somewhere among those glades he trod, stealthily, with the ears of a doe and the eyes of a hawk, strained for sound or sight of his comrades' captors. When he found their trail, he would stick to it as the wolf to that of a bleeding buck's. The rescue would not be attempted until the right moment, even though that came within rifle-shot of the Shawnee encampment. Wonderful as his other gifts was the borderman's patience. End of chapter 13